Welcome back to the Founded on Christ podcast. You're here with Curtis, another fellow disciple of Jesus Christ, striving to answer the call uh, from my Savior, uh, as he's called me to do things, to do those things, and to move forward with strength and hope and faith. Uh, That is what this podcast is and how it came about. And if you feel the call and would like to contribute as well. Remember that I have the email account founded on Christ podcast at gmail.com and you can send in any of your recordings or thoughts. Heck, if you'd send in a manuscript, I'd probably even be willing to read that. Just whatever you feel comfortable with to add more voices to this podcast. Today, I'm pretty excited about this um, and I hope to get through it rather quickly. If this is a little bit longer, I apologize. Uh, but this was something, uh, like always, that I felt inspired by Heavenly Father to do. So, in Hebrews chapter 9, 27th verse, it says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. <clears throat> and this is a verse that's oftentimes... When people like to talk about the doctrine of eternal lives or multiple or multiple mortal probations, they use that verse as the kind of the nail in the coffin, right, for that doctrine or that belief. And today I'm going to go over this and why, whether you believe in MMP or in the doctrines of eternal lives or not, why that is selling that verse short. And what it's really saying, it uh, in that it is not a declaration of how it sh- will be for us, but it rather it it is a contrasting view to describe why the atonement and why Christ's sacrifice is so amazing. And as always with Scripture, one verse taken out of context usually doesn't go very well. You really have to read the chapter. To get the context, I I mean, I've been told this many times growing up, but I remember specifically one time while serving a mission, uh, we were out on the street, we got contacted by a bunch of boys about the same age as us, who were really excited to tell us why we were wrong, <laughs> and to give us some scriptures that they felt were reasoning for that. And so me and my companion, and we arranged with those fellas, we both exchanged scriptures, and said so that we would read them over and come back in a few days to discuss them. Well, we went back to our apartment, and for the next few days, that was the focus of our study, where the chapters containing those verses. And it was wonderful how when we took the entire chapter, the meanings almost spoke for themselves, and how we were able to give those verses in context. Once again, that's my goal tonight. So I'm actually going to read through the entire chapter. We'll move pretty fast through some of these, because they of how they're grouped, but bear with me because it'll be important in understanding that verse specifically. Now, this Hebrews, even context for the book, (laughs) Hebrews, we don't specifically know who wrote it. There is a lot of hot theories that it is Paul, and I will give my opinion that I believe it's probably Paul as well, or at the very least, someone who has listened to Paul. Because if you listen to Paul's epistles, you see how he's very much about Christ being superior 
over the things that we do to ritualize and worship him, how he is the power within all of the things that we do that makes them run. And as I go, just to put this in context, you will see that throughout this chapter, how it is a con compare and contrast about how the tabernacle and the way things that were given to Moses, how they worked, and how Christ is superior to them. So, starting in verse 1, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances, a divine service, and worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. So he's about to describe the tabernacle in these couple of verses. And actually, it's really important, or kind of a wonderful side note, if you pay attention to how wonderfully he describes all of these things. All these things that we'd probably have some awe, even reverence around, if we had the opportunity to be around them. And why they were, you know, they were these sanctified, wonderful artifacts. And you'll see how later how that sets up for what they're trying to say. And after, sorry, continuing in verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenants. And over the cherubims of and over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So after he gets done describing it, he's saying, okay, now, now that you have the picture of this beautiful tabernacle with all these wonderful religious artifacts, the priests would come in and do the work of God inside the tabernacle. Continuing in verse 7, but in the second, and he's talking about the Holy of Holies here, the, where the ark was contained, into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, meaning he had blood with him, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now this is where we get a little bit of a shift, and kind of a shift back. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, saying, the Holy Ghost testifies of this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Kind of a nice little foreshadowing saying, all these things are great, but the real holy of holies we hadn't really gotten to yet. While at the first tabernacle was yet standing, and now he's going to go back. So kind of a switcheroo. It's kind of like, okay, you know, the real holy of holies we hadn't really gotten to. But once again, back to this first tabernacle. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And I like that, which was a figure for the time then present. The first six, seven verses, he sums up now in one little thing, saying this was a figure for the time then present. It was used for them at that time as a, a symbolic measure, which could not make the person who did them perfect. Continuing on, Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal carnal ordinances. Think about that. Imagine how <laughs> the people in Moses' time, how they would have felt uh, towards the writer if he had called what they did in the tabernacle carnal ordinances. So rereading that, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed upon them until the time of Reformation 
Once again, foreshadowing for things to come. But Christ being become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. Saying Christ coming as a high priest from the thing that the tabernacle is hinting to, coming from the actual Holy of Holies. Once again, what we are foreshadowing to. Christ coming from heaven with power, <clears throat> neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purifying of the flesh, and I love this verse, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's another reason why <laughs> I think it's Paul talking about dead works. But I love this comparing and contrasting, saying, hey, it wasn't by the, the blood of, of goats and of, of bulls that you are fully purified, but they, they were used at the time of Moses as a way to purify yourself, right? So if those things could work for them at that time, how much more does the actual blood of Christ, the actual event itself, actually cleanse you? <laughs> if baptism, and so kind of relating this to, you know, our covenant, if baptism is just a symbol of, and a show of the covenant you make to be cleansed, how much more does the, the sanctifying grace of Christ actually do it? Kind of showing the power of these ordinances comes from Christ and his sacrifice. And so moving into verses 15, He's going to talk about Christ being the mediator of the New Testament. Now, there's a few ways to look at this. The New Testament, you could also fill in the word covenant for testament. In fact, a lot of the NIVs, uh, they just say covenant. But there's also an implication here, a little bit of a will or a, a something that has to be enforced. And you'll see as we get through the next verses why that's the case. But just keep in mind that all of the covenants that God has given to us have to have a force of power behind them, and that force of power being Christ's death and sacrifice. So continuing, verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which, were, were, which are called might receive the promise of internal inheritance, saying that through his death in this new covenant, it also covers the first testament or the first covenant. It gives life to the ordinances that were performed in the tabernacle. It gives life to what Moses was telling them. If it wasn't for him being the mediator of the new testament, the first testament would have had nothing of validity. And 16, for where a testament is, there was of an, there must also, of a necessity, be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. And there's a little bit of the will aspect coming into this. But saying that the gospel ordinances always required blood sacrifice of some sort in order to appease the demands of justice upon us. Continuing on. 
18, well, and this kind of went with what was said before, but whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, saying even the first, the covenant that Moses gave to the children required blood as a symbol for a reason. And he's going to describe that here in the next few verses. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wood and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, that, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the, the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. So making a compare and contrast a little bit and, and building on this, saying that because Christ's blood, because of his blood being required for us, that's why these laws that Moses gave required blood. Because Christ's giving them the the efficacy, giving them the power and the grace behind those actions. That's why they were given in the way that they did. Now, I love this next verse. It's wonderfully stated. <clears throat> and it, it can be a little bit tricky, so just bear with me. It was therefore necessary that the pattern patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So he's saying that that's why it was important for us to live after the pattern of heavenly things. But keep in mind, the heavenly things themselves needed better sacrifices than this. The law of Moses was great because it was a pattern for what was going to happen. But it had not the power to do what needed to be done in heaven. It needed something bigger, something greater, something grander, something more eternal and more infinite. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true. Once again, going back to those first six verses, summed up with that little sentence here. Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth in the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love that saying, so like the high priest would have to go in every year and offer the blood of the atonement for both the people who were ignorant and the you know the worshippers, and he had to do it every year. You know, they, they really needed that cleansing every year because it was built up. Christ, he didn't have to do this over and over again. He did it once, and it gave the power to all of these things because of his sacrifice. And here we get to 27 and 28, the paramount verses. And as it is appointed unto men to die once, but after this judgment, so Christ was off, once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that took for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So here, once again, if reading these verses in context about Christ being superior, making things of value, making things work, you know, that were given before, 
it is appointed unto all of us in of ourselves in our own power to die once and then to stand for judgment. Those are the only things that we are allotted to as being born into this fallen and carnal world and not being able to live a perfect life. And that is why Christ came and offered himself as, as the sacrifice for sin so that he can then break those bands, cause resurrection to be a power in our lives, and that he can then come forth a second time without sin unto salvation. For anybody who is a follower of Christ, a Christian, whether you believe in the ability for man to be brought forth from the dead multiple times and put into a new tabernacle, or you believe that it, it happens only at the end, at the resurrection, either way, verse 27 is is the testament of the fallen nature of man. And it is complemented, and it, it provides the dark, bleak background for what we know Christ is and what he can do. <clears throat> so I guess I, I should explain, for those that, that don't understand or don't know, the people who believe in the doctrine of eternal lives, or multiple moral probations, it is not given to each person individually to have the power to come back into a new probation in of themselves. The only way that that is possible is through the great and, great and last sacrifice of Christ. When Christ went into the garden and he himself accessed his divine role, he reached back through the eternities, through the, all the fathers that came before him, accessing that priesthood, and secured another link on the divine eternal chain of priesthood and power and grace used for this world, created here for us. And it's through that reaching through back into infinity, through all of the fathers, that the power is given for us to experience multiple probations. If it weren't for him, there would be no opportunity for us to do so. It is only through his grace and his power that we are able to do that. And so as verse 27 says, it is appointed unto all of us to die once and be judged. But as 27 says, thankfully, because of Christ, all of the things that mentioned in this chapter have power, as does the resurrection and as does the ability to come forth from the dead. And I think that's something that all of us can agree on and find joy and happiness and peace in moving forward. So this verse isn't a statement of how Christ or our Heavenly Father intended to be. It is a statement about the nature of the lost world and the fallen world that we live in. And it provides us another interfacing point with understanding how wonderful and beautiful and how powerful Christ's sacrifice really is and gives us another understanding of how we can utilize that great and last sacrifice, how we can rely on it moving forward. 
And so with that, I'll leave you with those verses and those thoughts and allow you to think about them yourself and seek his face continually. Amen. Amen.